Welcome to Broadband Conversations. I'm Jessica Rosenworcel, a member of the Federal Communications Commission, and this is the podcast where I get to talk to leading women from across the technology, innovation, and media industries. You get to hear what they're working on, what's on their minds, and what they think is the next big thing. And I'm really happy today because sitting with me in our FCC studio is a dear friend and a truly amazing woman. I'm joined by Rebecca Slaughter, and she's a commissioner at the Federal Trade Commission. Now, I'm going to let her tell you her story and how she got to the FTC. But before she does, I want to give her a huge shout out right at the beginning, because just nine days after giving birth, nine days, she testified before the Senate as part of her nomination to the FTC. And when she started her job, she was the first FTC commissioner to bring her baby to the office. And for doing so, she was profiled by the New York Times. And she said, and I'm quoting here, I don't feel superhuman. I feel like a mom who has a career about which she cares very much and a family about which she cares very much. And I'm trying to navigate the two. Here, here. And so, for the record, not all superheroes wear capes. Sometimes they can carry a child in one hand and a copy of the federal record in the other. And I know we're going to talk about your experience bringing your daughter to work and your experience at the FTC. More in the podcast. But first, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real treat. All right. I want to start with a little backstory, and I want to learn how you got to where you are today. Sure. So um, I guess the best place to start is that uh, when I graduated from law school, or when I went to law school, rather, I was really interested in policy. I was thinking a lot about how can we use the law to improve the world. And uh, so the summer after my first year of law school, I went to work for the United States Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, Heard of it, definitely. Yes. 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 Um, People hear of it more and more these days. And uh, it was an absolutely amazing experience. And the summer that I was there um, was actually the summer that Justice O'Connor retired from the Supreme Court. And it was the first Supreme Court retirement in, I think, 11 years at that point. And so that was the thing that stopped all the news and stopped all the world, and it was a really big deal. And then just a couple months later, the Chief Justice died, and it became clear that not only were we going to have one confirmation hearing, we were going to have two. And so I um, ended up taking some time off of law school to stay and work in my job on the Senate Judiciary Committee for Senator Schumer. Uh, and. I, it was a spectacular experience. Yeah, I, I mean, history. The yes. Like, it, in the I making. Like you had, had a front row seat. seat. Yeah. yeah. And I, I really felt incredibly privileged to be a part of it. I had amazing colleagues and an amazing boss, and I loved it. But I thought, um, I need to graduate from law school. <laughs> I was like $60,000 in the hole and no degree in sight. So I did that work for a year, and then I ended up going back to law school and graduating. And I thought I wanted to spend some time practicing law. I actually was... I was not one of those people, even though I was interested in policy, I was not one of those people who went to law school as a vehicle to do policy work. I was actually also interested in the practice of law, and I wanted to learn more about it. So I started at a law firm not long after I graduated, after I took the bar. Um, And my thought had been that I would stay there for a few years and then maybe clerk or maybe go back into government. But after I had been there for like nine months, uh, Senator Schumer's office called me back and said that there was a council opening and was I interested in it. Well, that sounds like fun, uh, more fun than my previous experience. So I went back to the Senate as a counsel for Senator Schumer and I thought, 
at the time, I'd do that job, you know, for a couple of years and then maybe go back into the private sector. Uh, and then a couple of years turned into almost 10 years. And I stayed because I loved the work and I loved what I was doing. And I thought, I'll just keep doing this. And unless and until something that I'm more interested and more excited about comes along or another opportunity comes along. And so over that time that I worked there, I became Senator Schumer's chief counsel. He became the minority leader. We moved into leadership. So I kept getting great opportunities in the office. And then in 2018, the opportunity to become an FTC commissioner came up and that really felt like something I couldn't turn down. It had been hard to imagine a job that would be more rewarding and more exciting than the one I had been in, but this certainly fit that bill. So I was very lucky and very privileged to get to move here, although the timing, as you mentioned at the beginning, yeah. was a little challenging because I was pregnant with my third child at that point. Okay, well, that's a perfect segue. So table set a little and describe to the uninitiated what the Federal Trade Commission does, how it works, and what your day-to-day -day looks like. Sure, so the Federal Trade Commission is the independent agency that uh, it deals with competition and consumer protection. Those are our main missions. And what that means in practice is, well, what that means from a legal perspective is that we enforce, among other laws, the Federal Trade Commission Act, which prohibits unfair and deceptive acts and practices and unfair methods of competition. That's in, kind of a broad mandate. Yes, it is a very broad mandate that reaches all across the economy. Unlike your commission, which is a little bit more sector specific, it is it is uh, very, very wide in its mandate, although with less detailed rules in each particular area. And, and as technology grows as a portion of our economy and our civic life, the FTC has increasingly focused on that. Yeah, that's right. You know, the FTC was established in 1914 when the innovative technology had to do with, you know, well, I'm going to get my history a little bit wrong, but we'll we're say in no, the area yeah. of, we're, we're well before the area, the era of the internet. Yeah, no social like, media back then. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so um, unfair and deceptive acts and practices basically covers companies or individuals, but mostly companies lying to and taking advantage of consumers. Unfair methods of competition is another way to talk about antitrust laws, which is companies that either work together or work individually to use their market power in ways that are unfair to consumers or to workers or to the economy generally. So um, it's a pretty broad mandate that we enforce, and most of the work that we do is actually enforcement. So you mentioned it's a broad mandate. So let me shrink it down a little bit and sure. say, what does it look like on a day-to-day -day basis? So on a day-to-day -day basis, most of what I am doing is reading, evaluating, discussing, asking questions about particular enforcement actions. And I'll give you some examples of those enforcement actions. You know, uh, some of them have been in the news a fair amount. So the FTC brought cases against Facebook for violating some consumer privacy promises that it had made. We recently brought a case against YouTube um, having to do with violations of Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. But we also uh, do lots of cases that are not in that space in the consumer protection world. So a couple weeks ago, we announced an enforcement action against a large multi-level marketing firm. Some people call these pyramid schemes. They are sort of business opportunity scams that take advantage of consumers. We enforce against student loan scams, debt relief scams, or scams that go after veterans or old people. Like a lot of just bread and butter fraud 
we bring cases against companies like that. And then on the competition side, the work is sort of divided into merger review. So when companies merge and they're large, they have to file uh, paperwork with the federal government that gives us information about the contours of that plan to merge, and we have to evaluate whether that merger is likely to substantially lessen competition. And then we also investigate conduct, which is companies either working alone or together in ways that violate our competition laws. All right. So speaking of your day-to-day, like I mentioned right at the top, your days, you know, they have these briefings and meetings, but you also brought your infant daughter with you to work, and she was really young, and you had this policy you called bring your own baby. I'm intrigued to learn some more about that and also how you see that in light of a goal I think we both share, which is advocating for more women in our agencies and in our technology sphere and parts of the economy. And tell me a little bit more about your experience and why you think it is important for women and mothers to be at the table and be in leadership positions. Thanks. It's a really good question. And let me start by saying uh, when I had the opportunity to start this job and had a new baby at the same time, I didn't have an easy and obvious option of how to handle it. I think we're all familiar, and women in particular familiar, with the deficits in the U.S. law when it comes to maternity and paternity leave, and which is to say that we don't have any paid maternity and paternity leave, and that you know, most federal employees get up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave that they can take. But as a commissioner, which for the record, I will just say 12 weeks is inadequate, unpaid is inadequate, all of these things are inadequate. Yeah. But as a commissioner, um, as you know, we have a slightly different setup because in the privilege of the positions that we hold, we also don't get structured leave time. We're expected to be on and accountable. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are always on the clock. Yeah, exactly. And so when I was lucky enough and really lucky enough to get this opportunity and to be confirmed relatively quickly, I had a choice to make, which was could I, should I be sworn in, even though I had this new baby who ended up being one month old on the day I was sworn in. It was her wow. one-month birthday. Um, and start my job, or should I not? Uh, but miss the startup of a new commission because three of my other fellow commissioners were all being sworn in at the same time? Um, Should I get sworn in and just take maternity leave, which I wasn't sure would be the best way to fulfill my oath of office and my duty? And I wasn't sure what the right option would be. But this was my third child, so I was a little bit more practiced. Um, I knew what I was doing a little bit more with the baby. A little more confident about those things, right? Yeah, exactly. And she happened to be a pretty easy baby. That is always is, a bonus. Yes, which is not a given. Um, and so I decided the plan that I made in advance was I was going to try to see what I could do about starting up my job, bringing the baby with me, and taking the time I needed Um, I will say up front, and I didn't build a nursery next to my office and have a nanny taking care of the baby with me. I don't have the resources to do that. That wasn't what it was. This was just the best worst option in, in a set of options. And I was lucky, unlike many, many working parents, to be able to make my own choice about what worked for me. And that was really the privilege I had in this position. No one was in charge of me except for me. No one could say yes or no. I didn't have to get anybody's permission. And that is a privilege that most women do not have in this country. 
So that's what I felt really lucky about that I could do to try to craft a path that worked the best for me. So my plan was to come into the office two or three days a week with the baby and then to work from home the other two or three days a week. I spent the first six months or five months that I was there really doing only internal facing meetings, which to be fair, I think I would have done anyway because I knew that I came into this job with a whole lot of policy experience in the areas of antitrust and consumer protection, but no enforcement experience. And I had a lot of learning to do about how the agency worked and how the staff, the career staff who'd been doing their job in many cases for decades, thought about the work and thought about the challenges and the opportunities. That's so important. It's always good to do homework in any institution you join. And yeah. I think there's probably a lot of benefit to that, even if it was something you felt compelled to do because of your situation. Right, exactly. I think I probably would have done it anyway, but it certainly worked out well. I spent those first few months just doing meet and greets with all of the staff in all of the divisions, the paralegals, the attorneys, everybody, to really learn what they knew as much as I could. And I happened to do that with a tiny little baby in tow. Um, so I'd like put her in the wrap and you know maybe get up and bounce during meetings. And, it, and everybody was great. Everybody was supportive and inclusive and understanding. Um, the most awkward moment I had was the first time she woke up and clearly needed to be fed when I was in the middle of a meeting in my office, but with, I don't know, like maybe five or six men talking about a competition issue. And I had to sort of do this mental juggle of, okay, well, I need to nurse the baby. I'm sitting here with a group of men in a professional setting. What, what am I going to do about this? And I just decided, I, I think I'm going to feed my baby because that's what I need to do about this. So I just put, I didn't say anything. I just put on a nursing cover and, you know, latched her on and just kept going with the meeting. And to the credit of everybody in the room, nobody missed a beat. Nobody blinked. We just continued to have the meeting. I got a lot of excellent eye contact, which is what I find happens. I'm feeling this, like this must have been an FTC first. Yeah, I'm guessing that that probably hadn't happened before. Um, but everybody handled it really well, and everybody was really understanding. And so, again, I want to make clear, I couldn't have done this. This isn't right for every woman. It wouldn't even have been right for me in every job or with every baby that I have had. But it was the best way to manage this particular circumstance. And I thought sending the message to women that sometimes you have to find creative solutions to balancing work and family. And I want to make space for people to be able to do that in the sphere that I occupy. And that starts with setting an example of doing that was really important. And then I will add, it is equally important to me that when other people in the agency make clear that they have family obligations or personal obligations, that we make space for them to do that too. And I do think it needs to not just be about children. I mean, children is how I experience the most acute challenges, but nobody, everybody is a whole person. They are their professional selves and their personal selves. And if we make them pretend they have no professional side in their personal environment, I don't think they'll work as well. I don't think they'll be as happy. I don't think that's good for the agency. So whether it's your kids, or your pets, or your opera hobby, or whatever it is, I think it's really important for employers to make space for people to be whole people and do their jobs well. You know what I love most is that you didn't shy away from being very public about the, about the fact you were doing this. Yeah. And I feel like you sent an image to a lot of people that was really powerful, which was that I can do both of these things. I can do them at the same time. Watch me. 
Yeah, and also, I'm not perfect, right? Like, sure, I know sure. that this is not, um, it was really important to me, too, to not suggest to women that you have to be able to bring your baby to the office or you have to be able to juggle all these things at the same time because I know how hard that can be. And I didn't get enough sleep and I didn't feel like I was my very best self, um, but I was doing the best that I could at all the things that I cared about and wanted to be doing. So I do think it's a balanced message that um, I'm gonna make my choices publicly. I have the privilege of being in a position where the only person who's in charge of those choices is me and I will be accountable for them and answer questions about them and be honest about the ups and the downs. All right. So I'm going to switch gears from life choices, families, women in the office, to talking about privacy. Because a lot of time when we read about the FTC these days, it's about technology and privacy. And it's such a big issue for everyone, including families and consumers across the board. So what are the biggest issues you see when it comes to data and privacy and how does the FTC wrestle with that, especially with its century-old statute? Yeah, these are great questions. So uh, I'll share a few of my observations from having done work on privacy cases and um, thinking about this issue that's in the news every day. Every day. Literally every day. So when we think about privacy traditionally, what we think about is um, people having information about you that you didn't want them to have or didn't intend to share with them or somehow violates your sense of personal autonomy. Um, And that is a pervasive problem. That happens all the time. I think for the most part, we have, we as consumers have very little idea what information is collected about us, by whom, how it is shared, how it is used. The point that I think we need to start thinking about more when we're talking about these issues though, when we say privacy, I don't think that captures the whole scope of the issues that are material to consumers. Because you can't really separate the harms that flow from data being collected about somebody that they don't want collected to the harms that flow from that data then being used to maybe target information to somebody or make decisions for somebody. So I will give you an example. We hear a lot about um, manipulative ads and manipulative ad targeting. That is facilitated by the collection of personal data that allows very personalized advertising to be targeted towards people. And sometimes that's great because I can get an advertisement for like a color block swimsuit or washable shoes that I think are terrific. But sometimes that's really bad because you end up with either politically problematic or uh, sort of propaganda-driven messages, or we've seen a lot of literature recently about, um, you know, white supremacist recruitment targeting teenage boys. So how much of this is contextual advertising versus behavioral advertising? And maybe you should actually explain the difference. Yeah, that's a great, great point. So for a long time, ad-supported services are something we've all been comfortable with and familiar with for a long time in the broadcasting industry. Yeah, in the pre-internet era, that's That's what it was about. That's how television was paid for. That's how newspapers were paid for. Um, Contextual advertising is if I am watching a a show, let's say maybe I'm watching a sporting event, a a race car event, they will serve an ad about cars because they think that I am interested in cars because I'm watching this show. Which seems reasonable. Seems very reasonable. And that's what you saw in traditional media, like and, you describe. And everybody sees the, everybody who's watching the car show sees the same ads. And anybody who wants to know what ads are shown 
to people watching the car show can easily look at what ads are shown because they're shown to everybody. Behavioral advertising is a little bit different. Behavioral advertising takes information about your particular behavior, which websites you've looked at, which articles you've read, which uh, you know flat screen TVs you've put in your shopping cart online and not clicked purchase on, and then uses that information to serve you particularly a specific ad. And when I say you particularly, it doesn't always mean it's associated with the name Jessica Rosenwurzel, but it may be associated with your particular IP address, your particular browsing history, and that means you get, the, the efficiency argument for this is that you get content that is better tailored to your particular interests, and that's good for you because you don't, maybe you don't actually care about cars. Maybe you really only care about, like I said, the color block swimsuits. So there's an argument for its efficiency, but it also means that companies have amassed huge files of data. Like treasure troves. Treasure troves that we can't even fathom on each of us and everything we do across the web. So it's not just which stories you've read on Facebook, but it's which websites you've gone to off of Facebook and which things that you've listened. And when this came up, people noticed it all the time. They started commenting. It's what I used to call when I worked in the Senate, the ick factor. People would be like, why am I getting an ad for this flat screen TV that I looked at on a different computer? How do they know that I looked at it? And it's because you're being tracked. And so that feels invasive in the first instance. But I also think we have to think seriously about what are the broader or even narrower societal harms that flow from this. I think about children. What content is targeted towards children? Is manipulative content targeted towards children who have less of a facility and less of an ability to sort of do their own filtering? That we also have more specific laws when it comes to children under 13. Yes, that's uh, right. But but that law, COPPA, Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, it's right. about 20 years old, so much more modern than the FTC statute, but still 20 years. 20 years is a long time is a in long technology. long time in technology. So um, COPPA prohibits the collection of information about children without their parents' consent. Again, that's not exactly the same as the targeting of information to children. So when I think about the harms that we worry about, that this is some of the stuff that I think about that goes beyond the particular confines of what we traditionally think of as privacy. And I'll give you another example. Um, I have, in addition to the baby, I have two older children. My seven-year-old really likes playing jigsaw puzzles. Um, but when he does them at home, if he does traditional analog jigsaw puzzles, his five-year-old sister Oh, they're tries coming to, for those pieces, yes, I can exactly. see. Yeah. Ellie tries to help, and the baby tries to eat the pieces. And this is very frustrating for him. He's very patient, but it's frustrating. So he, he, we have you know a device that we allow the kids to use that we curate and only put things that we approve on it. And so I thought I'd put a jigsaw puzzle app on it. So he could do it. Nobody's eating pieces. Everybody wins. And uh, I went online to look for a jigsaw puzzle app, and there were two options, one that you had to pay for and one that was free. Oh, I, yeah. Notwithstanding a all lot of, of my professional that. expertise, I'm a you know cheap government employee, and so I put the free app on his. We'll, we'll say frugal. Frugal government employee. And so I put the free app on his device. And not too much longer, my husband came over and said, what on earth? did you put on our son's iPad? And I was like, it's just a puzzle app. He's doing puzzles. This is great. It's like good for his brain. It's excellent. He was like, no. He's sitting there watching these videos. I, I, he said, I was sitting there and I heard these videos 
one of which was talking about the perils of women working outside the home. And I assume that you didn't put that on there on purpose because, you know, he knows that's not my usual content fair. And I said, no, that's right. And it turned out that in this app, in order to play, in order to get hints for your puzzles, you could just watch videos and play them. And so there was this content that was being delivered to my kid that was sending really damaging messages that I didn't approve of or want him to be hearing and that I worry about his ability to filter because he doesn't have an adult brain. So obviously I deleted that app, I put on the paid app and that's fine, I can make that decision and I have the resources to do that. But I really worry about a world where quality content is reserved for people with resources and people of less means have to pay with their data or with their eyeballs and their willingness to receive messages that may not be what they want to hear or may be manipulative. And this isn't just about parental oversight. I mean, this goes to fundamental sanctity of our institutions of democracy. And we saw that in the last election. We're going to continue to see it. You know, there's reams of evidence of foreign powers trying to use social media and divisiveness online to influence U.S. elections. This is a big deal, and it's something that we should all be really, really concerned about. And it starts with the privacy harms. Do you think the FTC has all the authority it needs right now to tackle those privacy issues, which are so vast and touching all of us and our digital lives in so many ways? So not long after I started at the FTC, our chairman announced a series of hearings uh, to look at sort of where we are in the 21st century. And I said that I thought this was a good idea. And what I really hope to get out of this is the answer to two questions. What more and better can we be doing today with the authority that we have? And where could we use more and better authority to tackle some of these problems? And I don't think that those answers are mutually exclusive. So I think that there are some things that we could be doing more effectively and better today with the laws and the resources that we have. At the same time, we are grossly under-resourced as an agency. You know, we have about 1,100 employees regulating all the things that I talked about. European countries often have 1,100 employees doing just data protection and data privacy, and that is one sliver of our mandate. Um, another statistic that's useful to think about is that we had about 50% more employees at the beginning of the Reagan administration than we do today. Um, and that's not an accident, right? Like the, We were systematically downsized <laughs> in order to limit our effectiveness and limit our enforcement. So that's a real problem. Also, as I mentioned, when I said earlier that we don't do as much policymaking as some of our sister agencies like the FCC do, it's because our rulemaking authority is substantially more limited. It's limited to specific laws at this point, it's right? It's limited to specific laws to use standard APA rulemaking. But on the consumer protection side, we do have rulemaking authority under a different statute called the Magnuson-Moss Act, which is sort of like the cranky neighbor of the APA, of the Administrative Procedure. Oh, that's Procedures a good way Act. to describe it. Yeah, yeah. it's like there's a lot. you got to jump through a lot more hoops. You sort of have to yell back and forth with people a lot so more. So is the agency looking at using it that way, or is so, that just early days in that discussion? I think it's early days, but that's something I think we should really explore when it comes to data protection and think about, okay, let's not wait for Congress to act. Let's think about whether and how we can do a better job setting out rules of the road for how consumers' data should be used. Because right now what happens is we bring cases and create sort of a common law of understanding of what counts as an unfair or deceptive act or practice in the data protection realm. But 
I think it would be better for consumers and candidly better for businesses if we could be clearer and more upfront about here's what's expected and here's what's not expected. Here's what's within bounds and what's not. I have never really understood the allergy in industry to rulemaking as a general matter because rulemaking to me is a way of the government being clear and upfront in a participatory notice and comment process that says, here's what you can do and here's what you can't do. And to the extent that businesses want certainty, it's a much better way to provide certainty than guessing and falling afoul of an enforcement action. That's a good point. Yeah. So I, so I, you know, we are in an era where Europe has passed a data protection law. California has passed a data protection law. There's but not a, Washington yet. But not Washington yet. Although there is a bipartisan group of our former colleagues who are working very hard with their bosses to try to develop something. And I I think smart, good people are working on this issue. Uh, and I don't think we can wait around for them to act to sort of do the best we can, as I said, with the tools that we have now. But I think them acting would also make our job a lot easier. All right. So I'm going to switch gears just a little more. Sure. Antitrust. That's also in the news a lot, much like privacy, talking about yes. concentration in the economy. And you've mentioned competition policy. So explain a little bit the FTC's role in that. What we want is we want companies to be competing to develop the best products and provide things at the best prices for consumers. And we also want them to be competing for workers and supply. We want them to be providing the best jobs with the best benefits and the best wages. And the thing that incentivizes them to do that on both sides, the supply side and the demand side is knowing that someone else out there might be doing it better. So you got to get better so you can beat your competitor. You can provide better products to consumers. You can get more market share. That's great. That's and innovate. And innovate. More market share, provide better products that innovate and grow. This is excellent. Uh, sometimes this goes wrong. <laughs> and it goes wrong in a couple of different ways. Sometimes companies get big because they are doing this really, really good innovating and growing and providing better products. But sometimes they get big because they use the market power that they have unfairly to exclude potential competitors or make it harder for people to compete. Um, sometimes they get big because they buy up other companies um, in a way that rather than enhancing competition will lessen competition. And sometimes they work with people who are supposed to be their competitors and make deals to like split markets or split customers or fix prices or fix wages. So what does the FTC do in this environment? So we try to stop that. Um, and that is what we are supposed to do. We evaluate mergers to figure out if they are likely to substantially lessen competition. That's our legal standard. And if they are, we sue to block them. Um, and if and we investigate conduct to figure out if it violates antitrust laws, and if we think it does, we sue to stop it. Um, I emphasize the point about suing because I think it's important to remember that our authority, unlike some of our counterparts in other countries, doesn't include the ability to just issue orders to direct companies to stop or to block mergers. We can either, and this is true on the consumer protection side too, we can't just issue fines. We can investigate find violations of the law, and then we can either negotiate with the targets of those investigations to resolve the concerns we have through a settlement, or we can take the companies to court and ask a court to, say, block a merger or uh, fine a company. But if a company yeah. subsequently violates that kind of consent decree or agreement you reached with them, you do have authority to try to enforce it. 
we have authority to seek fines, but again, so like we'll use the Facebook example because it's in the public domain. Um, we had, we, in 2012, 2011, the FTC investigated Facebook for some privacy violations, found that it had violated the FTC Act through a number of deceptive practices around privacy, entered into a consent order, a settlement with the company that, in which the company said, I promise I will not misrepresent how I'm handling consumer data going forward. And then when we investigated again, we found that they had broken that promise and so they had violated their consent order. That meant that they were liable for what we call civil penalties, which basically means fines. But again, we don't have the authority to issue a fine. What we have the authority to do is say to the company, we think that you violated this consent decree, you know, X thousands or millions of times, and therefore you're liable for civil penalties. Uh, and either you can pay us some amount we demand, or we will take you to court and seek that amount from a court. I ended up dissenting on the Facebook case because I thought what we, what the agency agreed with them in settlement wasn't enough to really remedy the problem and make sure that they wouldn't do it again. And I would have rather that we just took them to court and asked a court to say, um, either issue a higher fine or issue more constructive or thorough um, injunctive relief. And either way, I thought the process of taking them to court and transparently um, examining what we what they had done wrong would be a more effective way to stop it from happening again. So is going to court a really resource-intensive activity it's and the agency shies away from it because of that? Yeah, it's extremely resource-intensive. Um, it's not something we should do in every single case. If we can negotiate a settlement that will remedy the concerns we have, we should take that settlement. That's a good thing to do. I'm in favor of that, and I voted for a whole bunch of settlements. But we really have to be confident that those settlements will remedy the concerns that we have. And we can't be afraid to go to court if we don't think that they're good enough. Because at the end of the day, a settlement is just what a company will agree to. And if a company won't agree to fix a problem, then we should sue them. So I suspect if I was to ask you what changes you'd like to see at the FTC, you'd start when with more resources for things like going to court. Are there other th changes you'd like to see? Going to court more is an important one. I would also like more resources that we can invest more in, technologic, in technological innovation and technologists. So we right now have, our agency is divided largely into three bureaus, the Bureau of Competition, the Bureau of Consumer Protection, and the Bureau of Economics. The Bureau of Economics allows us to put an economist on every single case we bring to evaluate the economic elements of it. It is difficult for me to think of a case we have brought that couldn't similarly benefit from a, the work of a dedicated technologist. And we don't have that. We have some technologists housed within our Consumer Protection Bureau, but I think we need more and I think we need them across the board because every case we have, competition and consumer protection, involves technology. So that's one big thing that I think would be really important. Um, I think that we should consider, explore some of the um, rulemaking stuff that I talked about earlier, both on the competition side. So, for example, that we've gotten a petition to explore a rulemaking banning non-compete agreements, which is where employers prohibit uh, employees from going to competing firms. Um, I think that's worth exploring substantially. And then I think uh, on the consumer protection side, like I said, we should explore MAGMOS rulemaking on data protection. So. As a general matter, I think using the tools and the resources that we have more effectively is exactly what we should be doing, and thinking about all the ways that we can do that is, is a high priority for me. 
Oh, that sounds good. Modernizing the FTC right here, yes. right now. All right. Now, before I let you go, I ask a few questions of everyone at the end of our conversation, a quick take on how you use the internet. What was the first thing you recall doing online or on the internet? This is such a hard question. I My first memory is of internet memory is of the AOL dial-up screen and the sound associated oh, with it. absolutely, that, uh, that hum yeah. and the hiss. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I have a very vivid memory of that, and I don't have a particularly vivid memory of what I did when I got to the other side of the dial-up screen, other than that I remember it taking a very long time. Yeah. Um, although I think there was a lot of IMing, you know, with, with other friends on the other side of that. Um, but, but I, you know, when I was in school, you know, this was – that memory is from middle school for me. So it was, you know, the internet was a part of my high school and college experience very much, but new when I was in middle school. Yeah, so different in this generation of digital natives. Totally different. So what was, this is the mundane one. What was the last thing you did online? Um, I sent an email to my child's teacher explaining that we had forgotten the library book, but I will bring it in tomorrow. Oh, I love that. That is so real. Okay, so now, so now we're going to go uh, highbrow and ask you, what would you like the future of the internet and digital life to look like? It's a really good question. I think that what we have seen from the internet and continue to see is enormous promise and enormous opportunity um, for access to information, for communication among people. And I think that that has grown and that is a good thing. But I think alongside it, a whole lot of downsides have grown, a lot of you know, harm, violence. Uh, I think a lot about particularly violence towards women and um, other vulnerable populations. And I think what I would like to see in the digital future is more effective work by governments around the world in partnership with industry and civil society groups to um, mitigate those harms while facilitating the opportunities, which sounds very idealistic. But I do oh, think- Oh, no, I think it I sounds think, good. It but sounds I think good. It's, I think it's absolutely possible. And I, I bristle a lot at the people who say, anything you do to mitigate harms will necessarily mitigate innovation and mitigate opportunity. I don't think that that's how it has to be. I think we have a lot of really smart people thinking about these things and that we can do a good job uh, pulling back on- some of the problems while still creating the opportunities that we have. And that's part of why I think a lot about how we use the different tools that we have right now today under the law to most effectively deal with a combination of competition issues and consumer protection issues. Listen, I think we should be optimistic or choose to be optimistic that we can manage those challenges and still inspire that innovation. As humanity, we have solved a lot of really complicated problems. I do not believe that this is the problem that will stymie us. Oh, I like that hopefulness. All right. Where can folks follow you to keep up to date with what you're doing, besides the FTC website, of course? Well, you can find me on Twitter at RKSlaughterFTC, uh, and that's probably the best place to keep up with me. Oh, thank you, Commissioner Slaughter, for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to everyone for listening. Take care.